Hey everybody, welcome to episode 257 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm doing this one all by myself today. So excited to be back to you after an amazing weekend of running with the New York City Marathon happening. Today we're going to have, I think, a relatively short and sweet episode to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the New York City Marathon results and some of the things that I gleaned from that. We're going to talk about Shalane and her amazing finish of Project Eclipse. And then we're going to talk about a question that I got from a listener. And I'll give more details on that in a minute. But basically the question was, what are junk miles? Are there junk miles? Is there such thing as junk miles? And if so, what are junk junk miles? That's a term you hear often in our world here in running. Oftentimes I think it's mis used or not used appropriately. So we're going to talk about today what I would qualify as junk miles. So I'll answer that question. Do junk miles exist? And if so, what do junk miles look like and how do you avoid them? So we'll get to all of that in a moment. But first, we've got to start with the news from the weekend again, New York City Marathon. I was able to watch the coverage myself on Sunday morning on ESPN. And I appreciate on one hand, that it was actually on my TV. I could actually turn to ESPN2 and watch the full race. Now, there's obvious and ongoing frustrations with how these marathons are covered in terms of too few cameras on course, not enough split screen, missing big storylines from both sides because you're focusing on one side or another and not appropriately talking about both sides. And to announcing mishaps and things like that. So there's lots of issues with the coverage of these races, and I was missing having Kara Goucher and Lee Diffie or Paul Swangard on the call. I felt like the ESPN crew with Bernard Lagat, Carrie Tollefson, and John Anderson were from ESPN were solid, but not the same as those two. I, and I have to say, I, I appreciate John and what John Anderson brings to the table as a an, as an announcer for the New York City Marathon. He is not a running announcer. He doesn't understand running well. But I do think, in general, he does a pretty good job of telling the stories and connecting to Kerry and Bernard, in this case, in a way that is good. I think... And, and by the way, I've actually been in the New York City Marathon press room a couple of times as a podcaster. I got to be there in 2018 and 2019, and I actually got to sit next to John Anderson, and, and, and I've seen a couple of different formats in how they do the Q&A with the elite athletes, but in 2018, they had an initial intro where they brought up the the main elite athletes from each field in different groupings. And then they ask some general questions of the panel and then they allow those athletes to come out and sit at a round table. And then you can rotate around to different tables and either ask questions or listen in on questions being asked to the various athletes spread out around the room. And so that was the format in 2018 and 2019. It was different. We actually brought in, the elites in smaller groups and you kind of had to huddle around them at podiums and get individual questions answered. But nevertheless, in 2018, I got to sit next to John Anderson at a table talking to Stephanie Bruce about her upcoming race. And I felt like he got it. He did a good job of respecting and understanding and honoring the race that was about to happen and asking good questions and leaning in on other questions that were asked by others so that he could learn. And so I think he has the potential to be good and I actually like what he brings to the table. I just think he doesn't get many at bats. So he's really rusty. And in this case, he hasn't made a call on this type of event since 2019. So it's been two years. And normally he's only getting a chance once a year to call these types of events because ESPN has the contract with New York and nothing else. So I think John has the potential to be great at calling marathons, but he just doesn't have enough experience and background doing it. And I love Carrie Tollefson. I love what she brings to the table. I think Bernard Lagat, I struggled with a little bit with him 
in terms of how he was talking about some of the racing. But overall, it's a decent, solid team of announcers. Then you had Dina Castor and Lewis Johnson out on course on, I don't know if they were on motorbikes or on the back of, of vehicles to basically watch the races in the field. And so a solid team generally across the board, but they're hampered and limited by the resources they have, which is just simply not enough cameras on course. Essentially, it seemed obvious that they had one camera essentially there to cover the front of each race. And so once those packs start to separate, you have no visibility into what's happening behind. So they need many more cameras out there being able to track the various groups and packs. They need better commercial break kind of planning and timelines. They need more split screen. They need an ability for people to check in from the field and give you updates when you don't see things happen for whatever reason. So it's just, there's a lot of issues and I, th- I put most of that on the production factor because I do think John Anderson, Kerry Tollipson, Bernard Lagat have the potential to be good, especially with the support of Dina and Lewis Johnson on the course. But alas, it was, it left you wanting. You missed a lot of action, missed a lot of moves, not enough cameras, etc. And, but overall, Still a great morning to watch marathoning, inspiring results on both sides. Let's talk about the men's race, first of all, because I want to spend a little bit more time on the women's race. With the men's race, you had essentially two guys make it a very honest pace from the from the very beginning. And honestly, it surprised me that those two guys ended up doing pretty well. They both ended up on the podium for their efforts. You had Mohamed Arabi from Morocco and Eob Faniel from Italy, naturalized, I believe, from Eritrea. Those two finished second and third, about 50 seconds apart. They led the race early on, really pressing the pace, creating a gap to the field of two runners that essentially dismantled everybody else. And so you saw a lot of that, those second and third place finishers during most of the early parts of the race until you got to first Avenue after the Queensboro bridge, in which case essentially Albert Courier and his countryman Kibowat candy ran down those two and went to the lead at that point. It was interesting on the commentary because it seemed like candy looked more efficient, more solid at that point once they caught the two leaders and then, got a gap to them but ultimately he faded as well and Albert Career was the guy who took it pretty comfortably after heading into the Bronx and so the the questions were were answered handily well early in the in the men's race that Albert Career was going to be the champion it was just a matter of time and ultimately he won by over 40 seconds and ran a 208.22 solid time with a nice negative split. The unfortunate part about that early push from the second and third place finishers is that we essentially never got to see any of the American men compete. You got the, I think, very occasional glimpse of Elkanah Kabet, the U.S. Army athlete who ended up fourth as the top American in 211. He was fourth. He had been true in his marathon debut in seventh in a 2.12 and change. And then you had Jared Ward, Olympian, who finished 10th in 2.14 in a time that I'm sure wasn't what he wanted. And then, of course, you had Kinesia Bikaley, who ended up sixth, dropping off the early pace pretty quickly. And we really didn't see him much in the latter parts of the race either. So that was that was the the downside to those two athletes, RB and Faniel, going out early is that essentially we didn't really see anybody else the rest of the way except for Career and Candy, who ended up catching those two. And then of course Career stole most of the show at the end as the only male runner making the final push to win. So the men's race was just hard to get a feel for in terms of what was happening what was playing out especially in those latter packs just because we didn't we didn't see it one note for the americans is that noah Drotti ended up dnfing somewhere 
around the mile 20 point, he said that about 17, his body, quote, completely shut down and he just didn't have any anything left. Who knows what that means for him? I interviewed him for the Clean Sport Collective podcast on a recent episode. You can check that out. He was at the time unsponsored, but announced during the week leading up to New York that he's now sponsored by Solomon. Even though he's working full-time for SOS Hydration, he now has a a sponsor on the roadside as well with Solomon making a push to grab a rogue a road athlete but it was sad to see him not finish because he did seem strong and happy and fit when I talked to him for the clean sport podcast about a week and a half before New York so ultimately you had a solid result here from El Kabat in fourth a solid result result from Ben True in his marathon debut in seventh. 212 in New York is solid, solid time for an athlete who's never raced that distance. And then Jared Ward always showing up and at least getting it done, finishes 10th. So I would say overall, the American men did better than they perhaps they perhaps they got credit for on the coverage because simply we didn't see any of them. I think I caught brief glimpses of Elkanakabet in the chase pack after the early break, but I didn't see Ben True. I didn't see Jared Ward. I didn't see Noah Drotti. I didn't see anybody on the feet otherwise, just simply because they weren't in that breakaway early on. So that was disappointing, but I think if you look back at it, actually we had some solid results from the American men. And then on the women's side, things were obviously much more interesting just because you had a, a women's lead pack that was together for a pretty long time, really all the way until the race hit first Avenue. Again, after that Queensboro bridge, you come up and over the the bridge leaving Queens and heading into Manhattan and, and you get to that downhill coming off the bridge that, that then hits a flat section on first Avenue, which is probably the, the loudest of the course and you just get that jolt of energy from the quiet bridge to the very loud first Avenue that typically is a place where moves start to happen. And that's ultimately where the field, the field broke apart. You had East Africans go one, two, three with Perez Jepchichir, the Olympic gold medalist winning in a sprint finish over the final quarter mile or so over Viola Cheptu. Florida State athlete, also Bernard Lagat's sister, and Ababel Yeshwana from Ethiopia, who rounded out the top three. But they were all right together until that last turn back into Central Park near the very end of the race, right about mile 26. They were right there together. But once they made that turn, Perez, the gold medalist, made a pretty abrupt and violent move that put the other two away, and they would not see her again over that final stretch and she ended up with a five second lead at the very end even though it looked like this could be a photo finish with those three staying together all the way until entering the park then you had molly seidel and a host of americans do well beyond that molly seidel set the american record american course record from for new york on this day taking that from Kara Goucher and then you had, so that was for fourth. Then you had Kellen Taylor do really well, run 226 to get sixth. Annie Frisbee in her marathon debut got seventh in 216.18. Laura Thweet right behind in eighth. And then Steph Bruce, Steph Bruce, again, always kind of in and around the top, just like Jared Ward was there in a 231 to finish 10th. So you had five American women in the top 10 ultimately with some of the fastest times ever by Americans on this New York course with Molly Seidel getting that record from Kara. Pretty cool, pretty fun to watch. What was crazy to me though was watching how quickly the top three gapped the American women as they reached the end of First Avenue and started to head towards the Bronx. The gap was quick and massive and they were left behind and not to be seen again pretty quickly and when you're watching that you th- you think well what's happening are the americans they must be slowing down that's sort of the perception you might get from watching the tv but
But the reality is those three East Africans just made really big moves to put them away. And, and they just, they got into pace ranges that simply the Americans can't sustain over 26.2 and especially on a course like New York. So those gaps opened up quickly, primarily because of the quality of the top three and not having any to anything to do really with the quality of the American athletes who all handled themselves really well and held things together really well in order to still finish very solidly from a time perspective, especially with Molly Seidel getting that record by nearly a minute. So cool to see, cool to watch Molly come back from her bronze in Tokyo or Sapporo and get get a fourth place spot, not quite a podium, but a fourth place spot at a race like New York. She clearly, even though she finished in the same place as Elkan Kabet, she clearly got much more fanfare and attention for that, primarily because she was in that main pack for so long. We just saw a lot more of her, but also probably there's, there's probably some anti athlete of color bias, frankly, for Elkan Kibet because he is not American born. He is naturally citizen, but I would imagine there's some bias against him from a media and press coverage standpoint, which is sad because simply the color of his skin. So that's something to note for sure. And we've got to do a better job talking about athletes like Elkanah Kibet, just like we would Molly Seidel, the white athlete that we can theoretically all get behind. So so that was one disappointment to me is the coverage that those two got relative to each other relative to each other. Molly Seidel deserved it all, all the attention she got, certainly. But Elkana Kabet in the exact same place on the men's side got basically no coverage, and that to me is injustice. So so that would be something I would want ESPN to zone and better on, as well as all frankly running media in terms of these conversations. But again, American women crushed it, all looking really solid. You've got to give great credit to NAZ Elite for getting Kellen and Steph back in the top 10. They've struggled a little bit as a team, so it's good to see them recently. So it's good to see them back in that top 10 spot in New York. Annie Frisbee, amazing debut. She's out of Iowa State and and is unsponsored and works full-time as a graphic designer. So crazy to see how calm, cool, and collected she looked in that lead pack for so long. And then, of course, Laura Thweet, who left team boss, is coaching herself. Good to see her back in this position as well. So lots to celebrate as American fans, really on both sides, the men's and the women's. So that's that's what we had for the New York City Marathon results, at least the, the top. And now we got to talk about one of the results that was very near the top, running 233 to finish 12th overall and 6th American was Shalane Flanagan. This race, of course, marked the end of her journey, which she called Project Eclipse to run six marathons in six weeks. It's sad that she wasn't able to actually do Tokyo in person. That ended up being a virtual race in Oregon instead, but she did the other five majors in this six-week period in in just absurdly impressive fashion. She started with Berlin at the end of September in a 2.38. She ran London after that in a 2.35. Then Chicago and Boston back-to-back on consecutive days in 2.46 and 2.40. Then she did her virtual race in Portland area in 2.35 and then finished with New York City in a 233, her fastest of the series, finishing 12th, sixth American, just absolutely unbelievable results from Shalane. And I mean, there's there's nothing that would be superlative in talking about Shalane. Unbelievable that she was able to pull this off in the fashion that she did, not just in the times that she ran, averaging. 238 for the six races but also in how she ran them she ran five out of the six with even or negative splits with her only positive split being in london where she went out really aggressively and and came home humbly at the end of that one but just unbelievable that she was able to pull this off in this time period and what i've been trying to wrap my head around is 
what does it mean to me? You know, is this how otherworldly is this? So I've been trying to put it in perspective in terms that that I can understand as a runner in the context of my talent. Now, as an aside, I asked Des Linden on the Clean Sport Collective podcast recently. I asked her what she thought about Shalane's efforts, and this was after she had finished. Shalane had finished Boston and Chicago, and she said it's impressive. And and Des said she had no no desire to do something similar. So so if Des is impressed, then we should certainly all be impressed. And again, I don't think there's there's too big of terms in terms of how you talk about this project for her. But again, I did want to try to put it in context for us as the average everyday runner. And so I've got some some stats and comparisons for you. And, you know, in some sense, these stats and comparisons actually make me think that it's more doable than it looked. But then, of course, some of it makes me terrified as well and and again leaves me in utter shock and awe of what she was able to accomplish but let me give you some comparison points that you can hopefully tie back to your own talent and ability and try to make a comparison that fits within your realm of talent and expertise so she ran 238 that was the average time for her six races her marathon pr is a 221 so, so Shalane has one run two twenty one. She averaged two thirty eight for this project eclipse. That is a twelve percent difference in time. So she was twelve percent slower on average over Project Eclipse than than versus the fastest marathon that she's ever run. And that equates to about thirty eight, close to thirty nine seconds per mile difference in the average pace between her PR time and her average for Project Eclipse. So if I'm, if I'm going to take those comparison points and try to extrapolate out for the rest of us so that we can imagine what it, be, what it would be like or what you would have to do in order to run something similar within your own talent level, here's, here's some numbers for you. First, I did it for myself. I've run a 2.45 marathon. That's my PR. I've done that twice. And if I were to apply that 12% difference in time, then that would mean that I would need to average 3.05 on average pace per mile over six marathons in six weeks, just like Shalane, in order to do something of equivalent based on my talent level. That is closer to a 44 to 45 second per mile difference between my PR and what I would have to average to do something similar in the context of my own talent. For those that have run three hours for the marathon, if your PR is close to three hours, then you would have to average about 321 for your six races over six weeks. For those that have done four hours, you would have to average about 429 so 29 minutes slower for you four-hour runners in order to match that 12% difference. For five-hour runners, that'd be a 536. And for six-hour runners, it would be a 643 average over the course of those six races and six weeks in order to, to do something similar in context versus what Shalane has done, which ends up being about 40 to 50 seconds per mile slower on average than your PR that you would have to average in order to do something equivalent. And and that makes me think for just a split second that it doesn't sound as crazy if you couch it that way versus what versus what she actually did. It it starts to seem maybe slightly doable. If I think about me being in peak condition and I think I can get back to running at 245 again. If I think about me being in that peak condition and needing to run six races in six weeks in 305. I can maybe wrap my head around that a little bit if I was properly trained for the back-to-backs, and particularly in terms of the volume. And for those that are in the spectrum, you'll have to think, given those comparison times I just made, whether or not that seems reasonable to you. But I can almost wrap my head around it if you put it in that 
context in those terms. That's not to say it's easy. That's not to take anything away from what Shalane has done because it's absolutely amazing. But I, I can maybe start to wrap my head around it when I put it in those terms. The other thing you have to note is that she's doing it in the super shoes, which certainly helps with speed overall, but also more importantly helps with recovery because those shoes give you that ability to bounce back more quickly with the carbon fiber plate and the flashy foams that will help you then recover and get back to the next one. I do think that was probably a dramatic hope for her here in having the staying power that she did over the course of those races and getting to the point where she was able to run her fastest one at the very end. So again, not taking anything away from what Shalane did because it's amazing. I'm not sure I could do something similar given my talent level and I'm not sure who could, but, but I can maybe wrap my head around it slightly by putting it in those terms. If you just compare that 12% time difference in whatever term fits given your current marathon PR, then maybe, maybe just maybe you can wrap your head around it a little bit or Maybe it's a, maybe it tells you that, Hey, there's no way I could do that. I don't know. But I I think I'm on the fence about it. It's like, maybe just maybe if I was in that condition and trained for those, for the, the, for the volume and the miles, I think maybe just maybe I could do it, but being fit enough to do it and doing it are altogether two different things because it's one thing to go out there and and give it a shot for a couple of races. It's another thing to sustain it for all six and not to have anything pop up. No injuries, no issues with nutrition, no tripping on uh, another runner and going down. No, nothing went wrong. Everything had to go right in order for her to do what she did, and it's still absolutely unbelievable. And you know, everybody who's listened knows I'm a fan of Shalane's. I, one of my favorite episodes to do was episode 154 where I talked about lessons we can learn from her career because the other thing in context here is that she did this Project Eclipse after 18 months after basically having double knee, knee surgeries which left her in a place where she might she thought she might not be able to run again ever like she did before and here she is 18 months later doing it and doing it big so hats off to Shalane absolutely amazing she's an inspiration for us all. So there you go. All right. Let's turn to my topic for today. We talked about New York. We talked about Shalane. Let's turn to my topic for today. I want to talk about Jonka Miles. And to set the table for this, I'm going to read the email that I got from one Scott Darney from the UK. He's been a longtime listener, has trained virtually through our podcast group, now actually coaches on his own there in the UK, which is cool. So we're passing the torch. There's He's got other coaching influences, certainly them, than here at Rogue. But I know a lot of his philosophy there as a coach in the UK is shaped by what we do with Rogue, which is pretty cool to, to pay that forward. So he sent me this question, which I'll read to you here. He said, one term that comes up a lot, not necessarily at my club, but I hear it all the time in running is junk miles. It has always baffled me because it's a term that suggests that these runs are meaningless and serve no purpose. I would really appreciate your views on this and believe it would make a good topic for the podcast. My view is that no run is wasted unless you're running when you shouldn't be, such as when injured. I do struggle sometimes to explain an easy run that is not a recovery run from a hard or long run or doesn't contain any specific pacing that is designed to stimulate an energy system. I guess these runs are the runs that would be defined as junk miles. My understanding is that it's all part of accumulating the necessary fatigue over the course of the training cycle that enables you to train on tired legs so that you can become efficient at running through fatigue, both physically and mentally. It helps prepare you for what is to come in a race, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. And you seem to be great at explaining these things. So it would be interesting to hear your views if you had the opportunity to pick this as a subject for the podcast. So Scott, here we are not long after you sent that email with this as a topic on the podcast. And I think it's a good question because you do hear this term quite a bit. The term junk miles or people will call some part of someone's running junk miles. Oftentimes I hear it most talked about actually in the context of when people are running slower paces. Coaches I've heard will say that those are junk miles because they're quote too slow. 
And I am certainly not someone who prescribes to it being possible for miles to be too slow unless you're doing a workout. So I'm typically not going to talk about junk miles in that context. And I don't even really like the term junk miles because it implies that they are complete junk, meaning they can't be salvaged. They are to be tossed aside, put in the waste bin or lodged in a landfill somewhere, never never to be seen again. But rather, I think it's probably better and more productive, incidentally, to use the term unproductive miles. I do think it is possible to have unproductive miles. And typically in the context of those unproductive miles, there is oftentimes a way to make those miles productive if you were to make some tweaks. So let's talk about this answering this question that junk miles will rename them unproductive miles and I'm going to give you two scenarios and then we'll talk through examples under each under which miles can become unproductive miles miles running can become unproductive and by the way sometimes they can be counterproductive so we'll we'll put this in the unproductive slash counterproductive column these examples I'm going to provide but I think there's two basic scenarios at the highest level as to what can cause you to be running unproductive or counterproductive miles. One of those is running miles that you can't recover from. Running miles that you can't recover from. Again, I'll talk about examples of what that means in a second. The second scenario, so scenario one is running miles that you can't recover from. Scenario two is running miles that are counter to the purpose of the day running miles that are counter to the purpose of the day and again i'll give some examples of that in a minute so the two scenarios where i could see you having unproductive miles is when a you run miles you can't recover from for whatever reason and b you run miles that are counter to the purpose of the given day of training which can look different depending on the purpose of the day. So those are the two scenarios where miles can be unproductive. Oftentimes in those scenarios, you can actually change to make those miles productive. You can funnel them into a purpose if you manage it appropriately, but you have to be aware of these scenarios. And so as I talk through some of these examples, I want you to be thinking about your own training miles, your only running miles and asking yourself, am I doing anything that would cause my miles to be unproductive or counterproductive? in these two categories. And again, I'll give you specific examples. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, but I may call you out accidentally by giving you some of these examples. So if if you're one of those people that sees yourself in any, in any of these examples, I would implore you, I would encourage you to change your ways so that you can turn those unproductive miles or counterproductive miles into productive miles. So again, let's talk about the two categories. We've got one category, where we're talking about miles that you can't recover from. The other category is miles that are counter to the purpose of the day. So the first category, miles that you can't recover from. What does that look like? What are some examples of that? And to give you examples of that, I'm going to talk about this on both a macro and a micro level. A macro and a micro level. Macro being a big picture view of what that might look like across a training cycle. And then I'm going to talk about from a micro viewpoint of what that might look like within a training cycle, maybe even within a particular week. So we'll talk about both scenarios. But on the macro level, junk miles or unproductive miles are miles that you can't recover from, that you're doing but you can't recover from. And so what does that look like on the macro level? That means you're running miles that reach beyond your current ability that reach beyond your current ability. Yes, I've talked about it on this show. I've talked about the idea that miles matter. That if you can run more mileage and you can more consistently run more mileage, then that will build aerobic capacity, which will ultimately make you faster. But there does become a time and place where sometimes you go overboard. And if you're going overboard with your total mileage, then that's a problem because, because you can only add miles to your program if and only if you can recover from those miles. And so 
Oftentimes, people will become obsessed with a target weekly mileage level. They will think, I'm at this place, but I want to be at that place. If I could only run this many miles per week because my friend is doing or because I heard it was right, then I'll be able to get my goals. Well, that's not true if you step out the bound, step outside the boundaries of your current abilities and or ramp up too quickly or take too big of leaps and jumps because then what's going to happen is you're going to end up in a place where you're doing mileage that you can't recover from, which will potentially cause injury, which will potentially cause plateauing because you're doing too much too soon and therefore you start to sort of beat your head against the wall. And so it can cause you to ultimately take steps backwards when you're trying to take steps forwards if you run more than you're capable of. And this happens all the time when people are building, when people are building miles. Like I said it on my last episode, typically I don't want to see you build by more than about 20% from one cycle to the next in terms of your weekly mileage. So I'm not talking about miles per week from one week to the next. I'm talking about from one cycle to the next. I don't want you to have your peak mileage in that cycle increase by more than about 20% from one cycle to the next. If you keep it within that range, then your body's going to be able to adapt to the new load, develop the ability to recover from that new load, and then be able to therefore consolidate the fitness from that new load. Obviously, 20% is a rule of thumb. In some situations, it's going to be too much for some people. If you've struggled perhaps building gradually over time, it could be perhaps not enough for some if you're on the lower end of the range and you're doing maybe 10, 15 miles a week now, but you're trying to build from that more rapidly, then you have a little bit more leverage where you could maybe push by 30% if you're on that lower end of the weekly mileage range currently. But either way, the general rule of thumb is still a good one and applies. Don't build by more than 20% from one cycle to the next because that will put you in a place potentially where you can't recover from that volume. And then if you're doing more volume, then it becomes unproductive miles. If you bump by 30% or 35% or even 40%, those additional miles, those incremental miles start to become unproductive because your body just simply doesn't know how to recover from them. It is too rapid of a leap. And then at some point along the way, for those that are on a journey of increasing their mileage, you're going to find that you also reach a theoretical limit for you, for your body, for you as an athlete and perhaps for you, given the constraints you have in your life. And I can tell you as someone who has pretty consistently averaged more than 50 miles a week over the last two decades, and who has at times run 100-mile weeks, who has has at times averaged pretty much everything between 50 and 90 miles per week at some point, at some training cycle in the last few decades. As someone who has done that, And who has done that through the ebbs and flows of jobs and careers and moves and relationship changes and having kids and starting businesses and being involved in businesses. All of of those potential life changes that you have in that spectrum, I can tell you that there is a limit to the mileage I can run per week given the constraints that I have in my life. These constraints are happy constraints. These are things that I love and embrace. My business, my family, the time I want to spend with with friends. And so these are good constraints. But given the things that I have to balance in order to have the balance I want in my life while also having the balance I need in my running to stay healthy, I know that in a given training cycle, there is a limit to the miles per week I can run given my constraints. And when I go over that, it starts to be junk miles, starts to be unproductive mileage. I can tell you that I had a bit of an aha moment around this, would have been probably five or six years ago, where there was a time when I was being really stubborn about trying to hit 75 to 80 miles per week in spite of all of my constraints. And that ended up in in me hitting a plateau, not getting the goals that I wanted, having some injury issues because 
that was too much for me given my constraints, given the sleep that I can get in, given the things that I'm doing in my life. So I figured out and kind of figured out the hard way by my body breaking on me that if I just backed off a little bit, if I went to like 65 to 70, maybe low 70s in a training cycle, then I could recover from that volume and get the full benefit of that volume and then therefore unlock some new fast times again, which I was able to last time I PR for the marathon was in 2018. And that was under that realization that I had been trying to do too much given my constraints and therefore needed to back off a little bit. Now, the important thing to note here is that when I talk about this concept, because a lot of people will say, well, I know what my constraints are. I can't run more than X per week. That must be true under the other conditions of balance, which is that you're going easy enough on your easy days, you're balancing your quality with the with the other recovery and easy days so that all the things fit together well. So in that scenario where I realized I needed to be doing less, I was already doing all the other right things in that I was going slow enough on my easy days. I was taking my long runs at the right effort. I was prioritizing my speed work only on one or two days a week. So I was making all the other good training decisions and yet still hitting a plateau, still having issues because I was simply running in spite of all my good choices from from a weekly training standpoint. In spite of all of those good choices, I was still simply doing too much for what my body could handle given my constraints with sleep and balance and energy needs that I needed to put elsewhere. So I learned I needed to back it off. And for you, that number is not easy to determine. You have to kind of play with it. For me, it became a bit of a trial and error perspective, something I tried after having some issues with plateauing and with injury, and then ultimately was able to get back to PRs again by backing off a little bit. And so the delta there, given my constraints on the macro level, were junk miles, were unproductive miles. I was running more than I should, given my ability to recover from those miles based on the constraints I had in my life. And so that's another time when you can see this sort of macro idea of unproductive miles step in when you've reached that threshold under which you hit that mileage peak you can maintain and still build fitness making all the right decisions while not overdoing it and while being able to still recover from all of those miles so that's another example and you you could be in that place But I would just caution you, make sure that if you decide you're in that place or start experimenting with that place, that you're also already making all those those other good decisions about running easy on your easy days, having finite, hard, focused, hard days, doing all the other recovery elements appropriately before you decide that that's the step you need to take. You need to make sure you're running easy enough when you should before you step back because that is a common issue that I see where people will say, well, no, I can't run that many days or I can't run that many miles. But the real issue has nothing to do with the miles. It has everything to do with how fast they're running the miles. So that's the caveat I would have on this second macro point. So again, going back to it, unproductive miles are miles that you can't recover from. So on the macro level, that could be you building too quickly from cycle to cycle in terms of total volume, that could also mean you getting to a plateau, a peak mileage level that you can recover from given the other constraints in your life. Both of those scenarios might cause you to be on that precipice of potentially slipping over into unproductive or junk miles if you simply can't recover from that additional volume for whatever reason, because you're building to it or because You've already built to it, but you've got too many other constraints in your life to manage. So that's the macro level. The micro level might be related to individual decisions that we make on a given week of training. And so I want to tell you what that looks like with some examples. So first example, so I typically do an easy run on a Monday morning, typically have a quality workout, a speed workout on Tuesday. And when I'm 
in marathon training, I can run 10 miles on Monday morning at a super easy pace, oftentimes around nine minute miles. I can run that on Monday morning, come back around on Tuesday and have a solid workout that typically will be in that 10 to sometimes as many as many as 12 mile range. I can put those days together and have that be productive for me if I'm going easy enough on those Mondays. But there might be scenarios where I can't run Monday morning for whatever reason. And so I have to shift that run to Monday later in the day, either midday or afternoon. And if I were to to go out Monday afternoon and run 10 miles at nine minute pace and then go to dinner, get sleep, wake up and run my workout, I would not be ready under that scenario to actually recover enough from those 10 miles if they're squeezed to later in the day. So that's the scenario where some of those miles in that 10 10 mile run become junk miles simply because of where they're placed. If it was in the morning, no big deal, perfect, plenty of time to recover for the workout. If it's in the afternoon and maybe I only have 12 to 15 hours to recover before I got to go run fast, it's not enough time, not enough time to recover. Therefore, I should be backing off that 10 mile run getting something in because something's always better than nothing, but maybe turning it into a six-mile run instead so that I have the time I need to recover from that six-mile run before I go do my quality workout. So that's a scenario where I could have junk miles embedded within a run simply because I don't have enough time to recover. Another scenario could be that you do a quality workout based on what your coach has prescribed. You've got decent warm up, decent cool down, but you finish it based on what your coach has prescribed and the volume is shorter than you used to than you're used to doing. And so you go and you add volume to it. That can be a potentially totally fine decision in order to get to weekly volume totals. But let's say in this scenario, your quality workout was on the higher end of the range. The speed part of the workout was really fast. Say you're doing one mile or 3K paced reps, paced intervals, and then you decide to tack on a really long cool down from that. Well, perhaps in that scenario, being a slave to your target volume for today could actually hinder your recovery because yes, you needed that cool down from that hard workout so that your body can kickstart the recovery process but maybe by extending it too much, you've extended your muscles, you've extended the neuromuscular system on that given day, which might set you back from recovering from that day if you've added too many miles at the end. So that's another scenario, again, pretty case specific, but another scenario where adding that additional volume might prevent your ability to recover from that volume, which might prevent your ability to build over a longer term fitness trajectory. So that is a micro decision under which you're not recovering properly properly, and therefore you have unproductive miles. But cutting those miles, those additional miles would have been perhaps the best decision in that situation. And if you needed to add those somewhere, add them somewhere else where it's not going to affect your recovery in the same way. Again, that's a pretty specific use case in this discussion, but is an example of what I'm talking about. Another example might be miles that you add to a recovery run because you couldn't do them somewhere else during the week. Maybe you had to cut one of your runs short and you then add it to a recovery run, but that pushes your recovery run to a point where it's not a recovery run anymore given the volume you typically do on those days. And that could, again, become something that suddenly adds unproductive miles on the back of productive miles, potentially making a full day's run unproductive or counterproductive at the the micro level so that you then end up in a situation where you've wasted your time. So that's another example on the micro level. And that's probably good enough for that category we should get to the next but again summary here is that if you've if you're running miles that you can't recover from either at the macro level or the micro level then you have junk miles you have unproductive miles 
Let's talk about the second category of miles. Let's talk about miles that fall outside the purpose of the day. Let's talk about miles that fall outside the purpose of the day. So these are junk miles. These are the, these are the miles when you're running them, but they could be unproductive at best, counterproductive at worst, simply because you're not listening to what you should be doing that day in whatever form. So let's dig into this and I'm going to, I'm going to walk through this series of examples by getting into the potential purposes you might have for various days of the week. And so let's start with a day like your medium long run day. The medium long run day is a day in which you're trying to build aerobic capacity. You're trying to run easy and long-ish so that you can build aerobic capacity. Aerobic capacity being all the things I talk about when it comes to processing oxygen from the air to your working muscles to make your system go. This is me when I'm preaching about going slow enough most of the time in order to make those physiological changes from your mitochondria and your cells to your blood vessels to your red blood cells to your lungs. All those physiological changes the medium long run is one of the unsung heroes of that type of of aerobic capacity building. And so when you go out for your medium long runs, that day, the primary purpose is to go easy enough so that you build aerobic capacity, so that you build the size of your aerobic engine. You can turn that day or part of that day into junk miles by going too fast, that's the number one mistake people make. Because when you go too fast, which typically is faster than a minute slower than your marathon target marathon pace or 90 seconds slower than your target half marathon pace, when you go too fast, you actually end up in a different aerobic zone to the point where you're no longer accomplishing the goal of building aerobic capacity. You're accomplishing the goal of fine-tuning some other part of your aerobic system, which we could call aerobic fine-tuning. That's when you start to fine-tune the engine versus build the engine by going too fast on that day. And so if you're hammering your medium long run, any of those miles in there that are done too fast are junk miles or unproductive miles. Now that one's an easy fix. All you have to do is simply slow down and you will get into that appropriate zone. Now, it is technically also possible to go too slow on medium long run days. It's hard to do that, but it is technically possible. What does too slow look like? Typically for most people, if you're below 115 beats per minute on your heart rate, then you're you're more in a recovery zone than you are aerobic capacity building zone. So technically, you're probably going too slow, although that would be very hard for most people to do. But technically, yes, you can go too slow and therefore have unproductive miles on your medium long run day. Now, I want to caveat that with you got to throw out maybe that first mile where you're just warming into, into things and getting the system going because you may start may need to start more slowly in order to do that. And that's OK. So that's what chunk miles looks like on a medium long run day. Now, let's look at a recovery day. Recovery day, the primary purpose of a recovery day is not actually to build aerobic capacity. The primary purpose of a recovery day, this is active rest, slow, easy, glacially slow running. The primary purpose of a recovery day is to promote blood flow. To promote blood flow, which promotes healing so that you can then go run long or hard or medium long and do it successfully. So recovery days... While there is typically some aerobic capacity building happening, it's not actually about aerobic capacity building. It's simply about blood flow. Easy aerobic movement to promote blood flow, which promotes healing, which then gets you ready for those next harder, longer, fast days. So how do you screw that up? How do you create junk miles on a or unproductive miles on a recovery day? Again, you go too fast. That's the easiest, which is the most common. People think they have to perform for whatever reason or their ego gets in the way or they think if I have to go fast to get fast and 
as I've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, you have to go slow to get fast and particularly slow on recovery days, which is where I like to see you running at least two minutes slower than marathon pace or at least two and a half minutes slower than half marathon pace in order to be in the, or slower, in order to be in the right zone to promote blood flow and healing and recovery. Marilyn Faulkner came on the show to talk about beginning running. Her words for it were motion is lotion, which I absolutely love because recovery is all about that. Movement equals blood flow equals healing. And if you go too fast, then you're wasting your time. You've gone and shifted into an unproductive mode. And so slow down on your recovery days. Go as slow as your body needs because that's what it takes to recover on those days. And if you go too fast, again, you shift into a different zone where you put too much stress on the neuromuscular system and therefore end up in an unproductive zone where you could potentially down the road cause injury. So that's what junk miles looks like on a recovery day. Pretty straightforward. You can't go too slow, actually, on those days. You can only go too fast. What does it look like on quality days, on speed days? Well, if you're inside of a speed day, then your coach or your program or whatever you're following has prescribed you certain paces based on or efforts based on the part of the aerobic system they're trying to work on that day. And I've talked on prior episodes about all the different ways you can do that. You can work VO2 max. You can work on aerobic threshold. You can work on anaerobic threshold. There's different things you can work on in your aerobic system, all part of the fine tuning process, which we do on those speed days, those quality days. But when you run faster, most typically when you run faster than prescribed paces or when you go faster than prescribed efforts on those quality days, those can be unproductive miles because it'll shift you from working one part of the aerobic system to working another part of the aerobic system. And therefore, you're not performing the purpose of that workout or of that day. And you've shifted into unproductive miles or junk miles by going too fast. And this happens all the time for marathoners and half marathoners because we think we have to suffer. We think we have to press in order to get better and faster when most of the time it's all about control at certain efforts so that you can dial in and build that aerobic strength that staying power that you need over the course of a long race like a half marathon or a marathon and when you go too fast when you press then it becomes unproductive likewise equally there are ways for you to screw it up by going too slow that is not what i see most often but if you go too slow and therefore aren't in the aerobic zone if i told you for example to go run a tempo run or repeat or mile or three miles, whatever it may be. If I, if I told you to go run tempo effort and you ran easy effort, then that's unproductive chunk miles for the day because you're not fulfilling the purpose of the day. It might be productive for something, but not productive for what you're trying to accomplish. So therefore I would consider that unproductive quote chunk miles. So that's what it looks like on a quality day on a long run day, just like a medium long run day. Same thing. If you go too fast, you shift into an unproductive zone. Most people can't go too slow, but that is technically possible as well. If your heart rate is below 115 beats per minute on a long run day. And those are the big days. We've talked the big aerobic capacity building days, which are your medium long run and your long run where you should be running in that sweet spot middle zone of building aerobic capacity, which is typically anywhere from one to two minutes slower than marathon effort or 90 seconds to two and a half minutes slower than half marathon effort. That is of the approximate sweet spot plus or minus for those aerobic capacity building days for those recovery days. You can't go too slow, but you can definitely go too fast for the quality days. Again, if you're not in the right zone based on what the workout prescribes, then you can be wasting your time doing unproductive miles. And so to me, that is the second definition of junk miles. That's when you're doing something that is either against the purpose of the day or counter to the purpose of the day that's causing you to waste time because you're not checking the box you're supposed to check on that day. 
whether that be build aerobic capacity, whether that be work part, certain parts of the aerobic system, whether that be to get active recovery. If you're not achieving that goal, then you are wasting your time. You've got junk miles. Those are unproductive miles. So there you go. That's my take, Scott, on junk miles. It's either miles you can't recover from, which can happen on the macro or micro level, or miles where you're not heeding or listening to the purpose of that run. In either of those scenarios, you've got miles that are unproductive or counterproductive and therefore would be considered junk miles in my book. So there you go. You can now pass this episode to anyone who needs education on that. And hopefully that'll help clarify and answer your question. Thanks for sending it, by the way. I love it when people give me topic or show ideas. And now I'm way past time, so I'm going to wrap it here. This has been episode 257 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.